Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother married had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was, I'm sorry, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old old or under according to that time to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet jeremiah a voice was heard for rama weeping and loud lamentation rachel is weeping for her children she refused to be comforted because they are no more this is the word of the lord in a 2008 interview in Rolling Stone magazine, Melissa Etheridge said this, I got into music for the reason I think most people do, even though they won't admit it, for the fame and the fortune. But then I got there and I thought, is this all there is? I feel like there are greater things I'm supposed to do, but I don't know what they are. Um, that sentiment is probably not surprising the collective wisdom of humanity throughout the globe and throughout the ages is the things we pursue, like fame and fortune, usually don't satisfy us. And yet we have these longings as human beings for more, for, for fulfillment, for something. And what else is there? So even though we know that uh, wealth or popularity won't really satisfy us, um, what else should we be pursuing? And so uh, this desire for fulfillment that's in us is a bit of a puzzle that we need to figure out. And so how do we do it? Well, maybe you look at other models of fulfillment, of how fulfillment happens, and you try to apply that to your life. Fulfillment is a term used in the retail business. And so if you're a customer and you're wanting to buy something, the order needs to be fulfilled. It's quite complicated, actually, having to deal with what you keep in stock and don't keep in stock. And, and the question of when is the order fulfilled? Is the responsibility of the store owner completed once it's put in the mail? Or is it completed once you haven't returned it? 
And so as people map out the various steps, maybe for the customer, it's as simple as once you have it, then it's fulfilled. But, but mapping out those kinds of steps creates a model uh, for how we tend to do things. Yeah, if you figure out how do you, how do you get the order, how do you fulfill the order, how do we get it there, how do we make sure people are satisfied, could we impose that kind of order in our own lives? And we try. Uh, that's what we do. We, we come up with a goal. Here's something that I think is worth pursuing that will be meaningful. And then what are the steps that I could take to get to it? And then I just try to walk through that plan until I get there. And, and we think the biggest challenge will be failure or mistakes where you're not able to enact things. But of course, one of the things that people find is you get to the end of the road and then you realize the goal was not worthy of, of all that sacrifice or it just is creating this perpetual the next goal is needed. And so to the degree that we try to order our lives so that we have a present sense of fulfillment of meaning, um, one of the challenges is life is not easily ordered that way. Things don't go according to plans. You don't always know what you want. You can't always get what you pursue. And when we read the Bible, we see that that's the case. The Bible as a history shows the complexity of the human story where uh, human beings are longing and yet things go so wrong. The Christmas story is a story about a kind of beginning. Jesus' arrival starts something new, something that the claim is, is it's remarkable, but it also is a fulfillment. And one of the phrases from the readings this morning in chapter 1, verse 22, and then in chapter 2, verses 15 and verse 17, what happened in the stories around Jesus' birth, it says, took place to fulfill what was written by the prophets. There's a long story leading up to this moment, which is what makes the moment so remarkable, so wonderful. And so that's what I want to look at today, the Christmas story, because the Christmas story is presented in Matthew as a story where things begin to be fulfilled. And the claim is what God is doing there is actually what begins to fulfill, not simply his plans or the story of the Bible, but the longings of humanity, that if we want fulfillment, somehow understanding what, what began in those days is gonna help us understand what God could begin to do in our lives. So as we consider the Christmas story this morning, I wanna highlight that it's a complex story. It's a painful story, but it's also a remarkable story. So I'm gonna begin with it being a complex story. So you read the Bible and it's a history. It's a history of particular people in particular places. And two things may stand out. One is things rarely go as expected. When you read the Bible, in nearly every story, there's tragedy or there's surprise or there's confusion. And, and a second thing for the experience of the reader is it's not always easy to know what God is doing. And now this is the Bible, so we read it with the expectation God is in this somewhere. Where is God? Well, God is not always in the central places. God is not always in the place that you would expect. But in the stories of the Bible, God is always there somewhere working things. And so, uh, but it's hard to see because it's so complex. And so as an example of the complexity, uh, here's a minor character in the Christmas story, but a major character in terms of how the Bible unfolds. In chapter two, verse 18, the name Rachel is there. She's, she's named in the Christmas story. 
but I don't know how many of you would think of Rachel as part of the, the Christmas story, but if you think of the, the story leading to Christmas, so Rachel uh, is the figure from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and you have Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, who believed that he was an heir to these promises of God, that God would be with him and with his descendants, and they would multiply, and one day through his family, God would bless the whole world. And so if that's the plan, if that's the promise, Jacob needs descendants. So he goes and he, he sees Rachel, and it's a love at first sight kind of story of this is my desire, this is the plan of God, this is how things will unfold. But the story gets complicated very quickly. He desires to marry Rachel, to have children, to fulfill the promises of God, and yet he's swindled by Rachel's father who wants to marry off the oldest daughter, Rachel's sister Leah, first. Now, this may have been fair to, to Jacob if you've read this story that the swindler gets swindled, but it's not very fair to Leah or to Rachel, and it's not very uh, fair to the rest of the family as this now complicated story unfolds. And so as it turns out, now you have the unloved wife who, who is having children, Leah, and the loved wife, Rachel, who is not having children. And so for Jacob, these promises, how is God going to fulfill these things? Well, uh, by the time we get to Matthew 1, we find that actually God fulfilled through Leah. Uh, through Leah comes David, comes Jesus. But, but God also did something in Rachel's life. She became pregnant when it was no longer expected and gave birth to Joseph. And then she gets pregnant again. And so it seems like actually now the original plans are going to be fulfilled. In Genesis 35, the family is traveling to Bethlehem. And the time comes for Rachel to give birth to the child who would be Benjamin, but she dies giving birth. And then if you follow the story, um, Joseph's brothers resent him. They sell him off into slavery and tell Jacob that he was killed by an animal. So Rachel never gets to Bethlehem. She winds up buried in a tomb. Jacob loses his wife and what he might consider his firstborn son, even though he was not the first, but he was the one that he desired. Lost his wife, lost his son. The story is comp complicated. How is God going to work through this story? And by the time you get to the end of Genesis, the story resolves in a wonderful way that despite all of the bad intentions, this complicated story is used to save this family in that moment that Joseph being sold to, to slavery in Egypt would, would have the family go to Egypt in a, in a time of famine and find that that is where they make their home. And so Genesis ends with that story revolving, but the second book of the Bible, Exodus, begins generations later. The family that was once there and treasured and valued is now enslaved. So what happened? The story got complicated again, and now it seems even more complicated. And so, so the, one of the, the, the key events in the whole biblical story is God seeing the people of his promise. God seeing the people who were called to bless the world being uh, persecuted by the world and suffering under it, and God coming and bringing them out. Um, when Matthew talks about Jesus' birth fulfilling the story, it's not the neat fulfillment like you would have in a business where you would say, if somebody placed an order, we send this to this department and we make sure that these, uh, these boxes are checked. Um, the story is, is so complicated that when Matthew speaks of Jesus's uh, coming, bringing fulfillment, 
he's not saying that there's a list of things that God said will happen. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, you could go back and read off the Old Testament, read the Old Testament and just cross off the verses until we get clarity on what's left for God to still do. Instead, we find that the story that we've been hearing all along is starting to be realized. It's starting to come to its fullness in a way that was not even anticipated by those who wrote the, uh, the Old Testament. So in, in Matthew 2, 15, Jesus, his family needs to flee to Egypt because of a persecution, because Herod wants to kill the one who was born king of the Jews. And Matthew says, when they come back into their land, this happened to fulfill what was written, what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And that's a quote from the prophet Hosea. Now the prophets tend to be forward looking. They announce in advance what God will do. So when it happens, you realize it was God who did it. But in Hosea 11, when, when Hosea talks about God calling his son out of Egypt, he's not forward looking, he's backward looking. Hosea is saying the forward-looking story is you're not going to listen and you're going to be taken captive and you're going to suffer. But Hosea 11 comes and he says, but God will show you kindness. How do you know it? Well, remember what God once did. Remember when you were suffering, God looked at you and he called you out of Egypt. He made you his son, his family. And so he once again will show that kind of favor. Hosea was not predicting that God would call a son out of Egypt. He was saying God already has. And that's how we know we can trust him. But Matthew is saying, but back then we didn't realize that he would actually not call a people out that he would describe as his son. But according to the Christmas story, one who's born is actually his son. And this one will come and he'll realize not just this one verse, but the story of God's people who needed to be brought out of suffering, out of slavery, out of Egypt. And so if you're familiar with the Exodus story, and then you see how Matthew tells his story, you realize the fulfillment is not just a verse that could be applied, but a, but a story that's coming to life and its reality. And so in the Exodus story, they're enslaved in Egypt, but they are brought out by God's power and uh, they come to the waters that part for them. So they come through the waters. Uh, and they're rescued and kept safe. And then they come to a mountain where the law and the commandments are given to them. And then they go into the wilderness where for 40 years they're being tested. And then Matthew in Matthew 1 gives a genealogy connecting the story. And then in Matthew 2 says, Jesus is one who comes up out of Egypt. And in Matthew 3, he goes into the waters and he's baptized. And in Matthew 4, he goes into the wilderness where he's tested for 40 days. And in Matthew 5, he goes up in a mountain and he gives the law and the commandments. Uh, Matthew is saying the story of scripture is reaching its reality, it's coming to its fullness. That's what the fulfillment is, that, that everything that we've been hoping for, everything that we couldn't see because the, the narrative is so confused, is starting to come together in the one who was born. And why this is important is because Christmas marks a beginning. The fulfillment begins, but there's so much that Jesus has not yet done. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection, where so much has been fulfilled, we're, we're told we live in a period of time that we're still waiting for his return. We're waiting for the, the fulfilling of all things. But that beginning is important. The beginning is important because it says right now our longings uh, have an object of something that will start to be satisfied. And, and if God has come and if God is with us and if the story is trying to come together, even if our lives are confused and complicated, and even if we can't necessarily see where God is working, 
We can trust if our eyes are on Jesus that somehow things are gonna come together, it will make sense. And so in the meantime, we just need to keep going, trusting the God who was faithful in the past and who promises for the future and keeping our eyes on Jesus in whom the story more and more reaches its reality and climax. I spoke to somebody a couple of weeks ago who shared with me uh, that he had a painful memory of something from when, when he was younger. And the kind of thing that you, you don't want to think about or you think about in a way that feeds ongoing resentment, that just stirs your heart to greater grumbling. And he decided that he was going to confront this. He was going to, he was going to sit down and think through it in prayer with the question, Lord, where were you? Um, and, and two things to note here. One is this wasn't sitting down in the evening for 10 minutes and trying to pray, but he, he set aside hours of prayer to say, I, I want to I come before you, Lord, and seek you for this. And then also an interesting thing is he didn't do it alone. He had a friend who was praying with him and interacting with him. But his question, Lord, where were you, is a question so many of us ask, but he asked it from a different angle. We're usually asking it with the assumption, God, you weren't there. And now I have a question that I want you to answer. So explain why you weren't. His story was he became a Christian later in life and he looked back and he said, Lord, you were, you were kind to me all along. You've been watching over me before I even recognized it. So in this case, why, were, why do I have no sense that you were there then? So his question, where were you, God, was not a test word answer for yourself. It was a sincere desire to say, Lord, I'm confused about this. Where were you? And he sat in prayer for hours. And by the Spirit, he, had, he was given the sense the Lord was with him. And he, he said that moment was like a weight was lifted from his chest. That, that, that changed. This was three years ago. He said, the last three years, my life has been radically different because I saw that the Lord was with me in a place that I didn't think he was. And once I grasped that, his kindness and his favor, uh, it, it, it took off. It took away the bitterness. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer the resentful person I had been. And that's what starts to happen when Jesus comes into the world. There's a greater clarity that God is with us in all of the confusion where wherever we're looking, we don't know what God is doing, but we're told that God is there. And if God is there, then there's the beginning of something that will offer us the strength to keep going so that we could live differently in light of that reality. So the, the Christmas story is a complex story because the world's story is a complex story. And you as an individual have a complex story. What we're told, Jesus is presented in Matthew's gospel as coming to bring all of the threads together. And it's not instant, it's not neat, it's not a, a quick fix, but it's a real start of radical change where then things start to make sense. And so the Christmas story is first a complex story. Secondly, it is a painful story. So when we talk about complexity, it's not simply that things don't go as we plan or that things are confusing, but some of these things are very hard. So when, when Jesus is born and needs to go to Egypt, it's not simply, well, this is the shape of the narrative and this is the plan for the character. But, uh, but the language of Matthew 2 is Herod wants to destroy Jesus. And so he flees and he's, 
he's with such fury and anger that that destructive spirit spills over. When, when God's people are suffering in Egypt, it's not simply that God has set something up so he could show how impressive he is, but, but things are not going according to how the world should be, and it causes great misery and suffering. And so the Christmas story that we tend to tell these days, because what we're looking for, what we're longing is, is an escape from the pain. And so we've worked out this very extravagant story about a man who flies through the air with reindeer and who gives presents. And it's, it's a fun story, but it's a story that's designed to make you forget about today's troubles. But the birth of Jesus is a story that reminds you that, that God is actually very aware of today's troubles and is doing something meaningful within it. And so when Jesus and his family needs to flee to Egypt, it's because of persecution. His family becomes refugee because of political turmoil. The ruler who was put over them wants to kill them, so they need to flee for safety. This is a terrible story, and it's a terrible story where God preserves Jesus, where Jesus is spared in that moment. But the children of Bethlehem are not because Herod is on this rampage. And so part of the Christmas story, a story where we remember um, the birth of a child and we celebrate the role that children play, uh, we remember that Jesus came into a world where he comes as the one who uh, is to fulfill the promises of peace. And he creates that instability that those who are corrupt want to keep their corruption going. And so they respond with their violence and threats. And so Jesus is spared, but the children of Bethlehem are not. This is a painful story. And in that pain, Matthew says, but this too is bringing the story of scripture together. In chapter two, verses 17 and 18, when Herod did this, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And there's Jeremiah who's called the weeping prophet because he has, has a revelation that God's people will not listen and they will be exiled. And so you could read the Lamentations, which is attributed to him, how lonely the city sits. And there he's grieving over the destruction. And this odd image in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant promise. And so if you read Jeremiah, it's filled with warnings about these terrible things, but there are these beautiful moments like Jeremiah 31 where the promise is, but God will bring a new covenant. So clear in the ministry of Jesus that Jesus was self-consciously realizing this because Jesus used that language when he broke bread with his disciples. This is now the new covenant. The time of fulfillment is being realized. Jeremiah within chapter 31 as he, as he talks about God, what God will do to restore God's divided people. Um, what an interesting image. There's Rachel, who's not forgotten. Her suffering, not overlooked. Her weeping, not neglected. But there it is. It's almost as if as God's people go out of the land, there's Rachel who had hopes for her children and descendants. And there she's this figure of weeping as God's people didn't listen and therefore they're subject to this misery and suffering. Jeremiah bringing Rachel to mind at that period is such an interesting thing that then Matthew, seeing what happened, it's that same grief, that same longing, that same complicated story where God would just bless the world through Abraham and his descendants. But if it's gonna happen over generations, it's gonna happen in real time in this corrupt world. And so it's not simply gonna be a complicated story because the world is uncontrollable, 
uh, it's going to be a painful story because the world is so hostile. And so there's this picture of Rachel who still weeps, Rachel whose grave uh, these days we can only speculate about it where it is, but as a figure of God's longing, hurting people waiting for the realization. And even as the birth of Jesus comes to bring good news, it brings more pain because of the implications of news for others. And so the Christmas story is a story that is precisely for people in this world, people whose lives are not just complicated, but complicated in a painful way, a confusing way, a way where our longings are, are dissatisfied. And so what Matthew does is he tells the story by highlighting in the midst of all of this, watch what God is doing. He's now doing this through his son, Jesus. And yes, the world is corrupt. Yes, there's still pain. But now um, God is doing something that is going to bring meaningful change to that. And as Matthew tells the story, it's not the story of the apostles. And it's not the story of, uh, it's not about him. It's not his memoir, what he saw and did. Matthew is saying, I'm telling the story of the one who came and realized the story of scripture and the story of the world. And that is the, the calling of the church as well. Christians are called to not simply believe and receive from Jesus, but we're called to follow and imitate which means Christians are meant to go to the places that other people want to avoid because we want to carry the peace of Christ with us to bring good news, to bring hope, to trust that God will go with us as we go and will work where nobody would think God is working. The problem of, his, of course is suffering people have heightened skills of discernment that they could smell fraudulence and hypocrisy. And, and the church gathers imperfect people and sends them out in their imperfection um, but what that means is we go sometimes dutifully, faithfully. Um, but when we go among the wounded, sometimes they can spot any remnant of hypocrisy in us, any pride with which we are going. And therefore, uh, we should still go. We shouldn't wait till we're perfect. We should go humbly. But we should also recognize that if anywhere we're going, hoping we could call attention to ourselves, we're gonna to fail to bring the peace of Christ to people who really need it. What Matthew did by saying, look at how Jesus is the one who brings life. Uh, the calling of the church is to go, but to go and to help people see that Jesus is the one who the scriptures attest to, and Jesus is the one who will bring God's presence. For all of the genuine skepticism and concern about the church, hurting people historically when they've seen Jesus, have not felt ashamed, have not felt alienated, have not felt hopeless. The more they've seen of Jesus, the more they've been drawn, the more they've been given hope, the more they've been helped, the more they've seen healing happen. Matthew tells the story to say, the story of all of history, as the scriptures attested to, is being fulfilled by the arrival of the one who comes into the pain, into the complexity of the world in order to bring things together. It makes Jesus uniquely trustworthy in all of history. Uh, the church is the gathering of those who say, we're gonna receive this, but we're also a people who are meant to go and bring it back out into the world. But we need to be very humble to make sure that the world is not seeing us, but that something of how we're, we're doing is making sure our lives are being 
realized and fulfilled in the story of Jesus so that as he is seen, we find that the, the message has the credibility and does the work it needs to do. So the Christmas story is a complex story, but it's a painful story. But here's the last thing. It is a remarkable story. Um, as, as the beginning of things coming together, as, as the realization starts and continues, it really is a remarkable story of how God weaves things together. And so another prophet, Isaiah, the prophet of Christmas, is one that we tend to read most often. Um, Matthew uh, quotes in Matthew 1, he quotes Isaiah 7, a story of a king, Ahaz, uh, and an interesting time because, you know, there's all this political turmoil in the days of Isaiah. And you have, have this powerful nation that, that uh, they are concerned is going to come and destroy them. But it's interesting in Isaiah 7, uh, Ahaz, the king, gets news that Ephraim is joining with the enemies. Ephraim, the son of Joseph, the one through whom the prophets, uh, the, uh, the line uh, would continue uh, through, through Jacob's blessing. Ephraim, the, the son of, uh, of, of Jacob, uh, the brother of Judah, you now have Ahaz of Judah, who hears our brothers uh, with whom we're divided and we're, we're not in fellowship are joining with our enemies. And Ahaz is overwhelmed. Um, what are we going to do? And so Isaiah says, well, the Lord says, ask for a sign. And Ahaz, with what seems to be a bit of false humility, says, I won't ask for a sign. So Isaiah says, well, God will give you one. Uh, the young woman, the virgin, will be with child. By the time that child gets old enough, you won't have to worry about that nation that's going to attack you. And unfortunately, you won't need to worry about Ephraim either um, because they will be taken captivity. They will join with the enemies and they will leave with the enemies. And Joseph once again, will be lost. Jacob's sons, gone. But Judah, Levi, curiously, as it worked out, Benjamin, <laughs> they remain. Uh, and so there's this prophecy that Ahaz, it sounds so ordinary. It, it's almost like, you know, without having the advanced uh, time, time clock, that, that uh, as a time management, uh, Ahaz, a woman will get pregnant. She will have a kid, and by the, the child, by the time the child is old enough to tell right from wrong, you won't have to worry about this threat. It's not instant. It's going to take a few years. But if you follow the story uh, of how exile happened, and then eventually through Alexander the Great, um, when the Jews returned, they wound up, many of them, uh, being Greek-speaking. And so in the first century, you had a Greek Bible, <clears throat> where, where the, the Jews were reading it and, and the translators that translated it from the original Hebrew, they took this word that could have just meant a, a very young girl will get pregnant and they translated it actually the virgin will conceive and will have a son and his name will be Emmanuel. So by the, by the time Jesus arrives, the story has grown in its fullness and expectation that the first century Jews were wondering, what is God gonna do? by announcing that a virgin would conceive and bear a child. And so Joseph, the upright, the righteous one, finds out the woman he's engaged to is pregnant, and he knows it's not him. So what do you do? Well, he is a just man, so he does want, not want to shame her. So he quietly plans on calling things off. But an angel appears and says, uh, Joseph, actually, remain. A time of fulfillment is coming. And actually, the words that Isaiah announced are realizing 
are being realized in a fullness that nobody could have imagined. That of all the miraculous births of Sarah and Rachel and Hannah and all these people who longed to conceive and couldn't, and yet God did it. Now, now God is going to do the impossible, something bigger and fuller than ever imagined. Mary will be pregnant with a child because this will be the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that the child will be born, will be the son of God in, in a way that never could have been conceived. That's chapter one, verses 22 to 23. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the story of Abraham's descendants all along is we are a people who believe God is with us. How? Occasionally he visits us with angels. He made known his righteous law and we keep it. We have a tabernacle and then a temple that we could gather in his presence. And now Matthew is saying what nobody could have anticipated is God is with his people in a way. Who could have thought this up? That he is, he's actually come into this world uh, by the ordinary means that all of us have come into the world, but he's coming to fulfill righteousness. He's coming to do what we cannot do for us. And so why does Joseph not name him Emmanuel? Because that's what Isaiah says. The virgin will conceive and you will call his name Emmanuel. It's because the angel says, call his name Jesus, which is by, it's the name Joshua. It's by translation, the Lord will save. The way fulfillment works in the Bible is not there's a list of things that God is going to do that then you match with lines on, on where it gets fulfilled in the New Testament. It's the story that's coming to its realization. Everything is coming together. And so surprisingly, the one who's born will be God with us. But the one who is born has many names. And one of them is God will save us because God's plan for saving us is precisely to come and be with us. And so Jesus enters the complexity of this story. He undergoes the pain of this story because God will be with us first because he has saved us. And so you go back and you read the story and you think, was it fair that God spared his own son and didn't spare the children of Bethlehem? Why would he do that? Is it because he cares more about his own than about the others? No, the children of Bethlehem were his own. It's because the time of that fulfillment was not realized. Jesus had not yet fulfilled the law. Jesus came not simply to be born, but also uh, to be betrayed, to be handed over. God did not spare his son then, because when Jesus reached the fullness of age, he would not spare his son at that time. It's not that God overlooked the children of Bethlehem, but that God preserved Jesus until the time of fulfillment that he could come and give himself so that anyone who suffered unjust death or otherwise would have hope and life in him. Jesus who comes is the one whose name means he saves. God is now with us, even Rachel in the tomb weeping. God is doing something beyond space and time to bring the story of the world together. And it begins with the arrival of Jesus. So the Christmas story is where the fulfillment starts. And the story continues and we're still seeing the story play itself out. And yet that longing for fulfillment is there. And so we live in real time where, where the, the promise of Christianity is those longings can start to be realized in your heart that, that you don't need to settle for emptiness, even if we have to be realistic to know that we can't assume within the next week or two we could accomplish all of our lives' goals. Um, but, but real fulfillment can begin once God is actually with us in our lives. 
the pain can start to be healed, the purpose can start to be found. And then as we work out the confusing complexity of life, we could start to see more and more places where God is working with us. And then we, we have a growing confidence that God, what God begins, God will bring to completion. And so we live in the midst of the story. So to go back to the real retail model, um, when do you actually own the product? How many times have you tried to order something online and you're doing your research and you, you assume that you own it and you put it in the cart and then you go to checkout and the price changed where it says it's out of, uh, out of stock or you, you, you get it, the screen says the order's fulfilled in 10 minutes you get an email saying that something went wrong with your banking and you need to go back and, and put your card in. And so, so is it fulfilled when you, is your order fulfilled when you get the sign saying purchase is complete? And I don't know how you think if some of you, when you get that email that says it's been sent, uh, but then you press the tracking right away and the tracking tells you nothing because it takes 24 hours for the tracking to come through. So, so is it once you've got the tracking that you now know that you own it? Is it once it actually arrives that you now know you own it? You know, you try to figure that out and it's not always clear, but, but actually each of those steps does make a difference. If let's say this year you, uh, you had a hankering to make your own pasta, and so you're going to buy a, one of those pasta machines. Um, you know, if you went out and went shopping for, you know, if you got yourself a nice olive oil and good flour and whatever else you'd need, tomatoes to make sauce, um, that's fine while you're shopping for the, the pasta machine, but, um, but you might wind up not getting it and then having to do something with all of that flour that your gluten-free friends can't come over and enjoy. Uh, but if you actually went online and you ordered the pasta machine and then you got an email saying it was sent, uh, at that point, it's not in your possession. But, but to start to go out shopping, uh, to start to watch the YouTube videos makes a lot more sense. It's not just a weird dream that maybe one day you'll make pasta. At this point, it's just a matter of time. And, and the story that we have is Christmas is the fulfillment began that at this point, Jesus has accomplished for us what we most need. God is now with us. Our sins are forgiven. Reconciliation is offered. Life with God begins. And yet you still have longings, and it's still not clear what God is doing, and you don't know how the future will work out. But it's a radically different experience to say, but Jesus has already come. He's already accomplished it. The fulfillment has begun. And the main things have fallen into place so we could look back and say, if God promised and did those things, why should I lose confidence in the present concern that God won't bring to realization the very things that I want to see realized. You know, as we come to the end of 2023, uh, one of the things that happened is people, as they look back in the year, they remember um, people. And one of the tragic stories of this year is Matthew Perry, tragic because he was young. Um, Matthew Perry, the, the actor from Friends who died, uh, surprisingly, and, but, but at such an interesting period where he released this memoir, where he's telling a story of, of what a miserable life he had, but, but he's telling the story because he wants to encourage suffering people that there's a way out. And so as he was promoting the book, I saw an interview with him where he said, when I was 24 years old, I think he was 24, he said, I prayed for the first time in my life. And his prayer was, God, make me successful. You can do whatever you like to me, just make me successful. And he said, three weeks later, he was called and offered the position on the show, Friends. And he said, six, he said the first six months were wonderful. And then all of a sudden he had this realization, 
none of the problems in my life are in any way being addressed. I'm still the same miserable person. Fame and success have not solved that. And so he started to depend more and more on what would distract him, drugs, alcohol, partying. And so his memoir is a story of how he utterly ruined his health and his life while everyone outside is watching. He's so funny. He's making a million dollars an episode. He's dating Julia Roberts. You know, the outside story is the dream of what anybody wants. Lord, do that for me. And the person living it is saying, God gave me what I wanted and I hated it. It did nothing for me. So then he said, I prayed a second time. And the second prayer was much simpler. God, help me. And he said, the Lord answered that prayer. That's the story he writes about. He said, when I was there, when I had made a wreck of my life, I said, Lord, help me. And the Lord answered that prayer. And now I'm writing a book because I don't want my legacy to be the funny actor, the rich actor, the successful actor, the person who's attached to anyone famous. I want my legacy to be to tell a story that if you're actually in the thick of misery, there's a way out. Call on God and he will help. Remarkable to think that the answer to the second prayer is where he found meaning. That the first prayer gave him everything he wanted and it was empty. And the second prayer, when he was in utter despair, he finally had something. He said, this is something I could live for. This is a legacy. And so he writes a book in order to make sure that the story that would be told is when I called out in my suffering, that's when I found that meaning started to come. That's the Christmas story. The story that goes out and it says to the successful, rejoice in whatever degree you're successful, but don't depend on that. There's something more urgent, more important. So be wise, come this way. But he says to the failing and to the struggling, you are not left out of God's story, but God centers his story exactly where you are. Jesus comes to the lowly. He comes to the miserable. He comes to the hurting. And he comes to share in that pain and to bring the story together and to lead us out of it. And so the Christmas story is complex, just as your life is complex. And the Christmas story has pain, perhaps more or less than some of you are experiencing now. But the Christmas story is remarkable, far more remarkable than you understand or than that you're currently experiencing. But it's the beginning of a fulfillment. And more and more gets fulfilled as Jesus goes on. And if you walk with Christ, more and more will be fulfilled in your life, as long as you know that God is with you. And so that's the Christmas story. God has come to be with us in a way that we couldn't imagine. If he's with us, then God's purposes are being fulfilled and realized. And so have joy this season. God is with you. Let me pray. Um, our Father, uh, we tell this story every year, and perhaps um, it's gotten so familiar that we take it for granted. And yet, Lord, the the painful experiences are also familiar and the dissatisfied longings and the regrets and the failings are also very familiar. We need something bigger and greater this year. And so Lord, may the, may the spirit that brought Jesus into this world, may the spirit that inspired the scriptures he fulfilled, may the spirit that Jesus poured out um, be present in our hearts and minds to renew us that the season we would see that you are fulfilling your purposes and plans within our lives and that it would be a source of strength, a source of joy, and a source of hope. May we rejoice that Jesus came into this world in order to make sure that uh, we would be with you and you would be with us. May that, bring, uh, may that come in greater fullness uh, this season for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.